back to Kazutono Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 5 uh, opener, No Compromises. Uh, so this episode is uh, interesting for more of a behind-the-scenes reason than it is for its actual story. The story is actually relatively simplistic. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about how Claudia Christian, uh, uh, you know, left the show... Um, and there's been contradictory, well, you know, reports of why that happened and how that happened. Um, a lot of he said, she said, and I believe, uh, as with most things, uh, as taught by this show in particular, understanding is a three-edged sword. At the end of the day, the reality is it doesn't really matter. Claudia Christensen elected not to show back up for season five. And as a result, a lot of Ivanova's uh, story in this season had to be moved and shuffled around. A new character had to be introduced to replace her, that being Elizabeth Lockley here. Um, and everything kind of had to be rejigged. Uh, and as a result... Uh, you know, the season four crunch and then getting season five and then losing Claudia, um, you know, season five has a reputation and for some people it's not a good reputation. Some people really don't like season five, which is fair enough. You know, that is a subjective opinion. However, I firmly believe season five is not only really, really good, but it has some of the best moments in the series. It is an entire season dedicated to the fifth act which is usually the shortest act in any uh, work of fiction. It's the denouement. It's after all the big stuff that happened. What happens afterwards? It's the epilogue, effectively. Uh, and having an entire season of uh, television devoted to that, it's not only a risky, risky maneuver on JMS's part, but also, I thought, proved to be quite fulfilling uh, from a storytelling and character standpoint. It certainly has its ups and downs. It has some episodes that are meh in quality or, uh, you know, uh, hitches here and there where such as, you know, characters had to be, you know, rejigged around, such as Lockley. Um, but despite all its flaws, I think it turns out they're pretty good. And because all of the, like, technical stuff and uh in that regard to like like back in season one i think it's hard to describe because season one and season five are the most contentious seasons of this show and i ended out season one saying that i think uh that it is absolutely necessary and i can understand why some people would be apprehensive to it and may skip it entirely but i firmly believe it is necessary i i have the same feeling as season five i understand why some people would not like it or be apprehensive to it but i think it is necessary for the full story uh for the full character arcs and if you you know held a gun to my head and said which one is the overall better season I think season one's highs are incredibly high, but its lows are very, very fucking low. Infection comes to mind. Uh, so season five really has none of that. It, it maintains a sense of quality. That quality, you know, in some areas is God, you know, smacking amazing. It's some of the best television ever made. And then some of it's just meh, but it has an overall sense of quality that I think maintains itself compared to season one that also has to do with the fact that it is all one writer with the exception of one episode and that one episode is written by you know one of the most famous award-winning british authors known 
to uh, the you know the twentieth and twenty first century, you know, Neil Gaiman. So, uh, like I said, season five contentious, hard to get around, and I think that really comes to play in the fact that this episode is not really that strong of an episode. So Beefhive has a habit I've noticed, uh, and it 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 actually comes from more of a uh, a comic book style storytelling is that after some big event, we need to cool off for a bit. And then ongoing narrative, like a comic book, you know, especially mainstream superhero comics that don't ever stop being published. What you have to do is you have to create a storyline that is short, sweet, and simple. Uh, doesn't require the viewer to think all that much, but gives a reason for these characters to come back into each other's lives, interact, discuss, and sort of mull over the ramifications of what happened in the previous storyline that was so big and, you know, world-shattering or changing. Uh, and B5 has done this a couple of times uh, back in Season 3, right after Severed Dreams. You know, we had a Assassinate Sheridan plot, which was really just the backdrop to get these characters thinking about the future and, the, you know, their past mistakes and how they want to move on and how they're reacting to the fact that they are now, you know, all intents and purposes criminals. They are a rebellion now. And so here... You know, you you have the Earth Civil War is over. Uh, Sheridan has set up the Interstellar Alliance. He's being inaugurated in as president. And, of course, someone wants to assassinate him. And it is all there as a backdrop to introduce Lockley to the family and get the characters talking about the political ramifications of what they've been doing, get a lot of the, you know, uh, world building out for how the ISA runs and, uh, you know, who's in charge, uh, and really get the characters just mulling over the new status quo. Uh, the Overall, the, uh, the assassin plot really is just a backdrop. You know, uh, it's very simple, very straightforward. Hell, like, we don't even get a straight answer for a motivation for the assassin. You know, uh, you know his, his name is uh, John Clemens, and he was a military prison warden. Uh, and he was uh, kind of put there by Clark. And, you know, naturally he was corrupt. And uh, now he's just really pissed off at Sheridan because of what happened. You know, Sheridan dethroning Clark and you know, uh, restoring democracy. He's effectively a child really angry that uh, an adult took away his toy. You know, uh, he was smacked in the face by his corruption and he had to answer for the consequences of his actions and he's upset about it. Like, it's a very simple premise. But that premise is there just entirely to get everybody moving, get everybody talking, and the ramifications of what they have done the last season. Uh... So, uh, this, this episode really is full of great small moments, but the bigger moments that have to do with the main story, eh, give or take, it's a very generic, uh, sort of story. The nice domestic scenes between Dylan and Sheridan are really sweet. Uh, it sells not only the humble nature of Sheridan as a person, uh, in that he hasn't lit the fact that he's now the president of this, you know, interstellar alliance, this multi-government alliance, 
go to his head, that he's still just an ordinary guy uh, who loves his life, and he's living his day day by day, you know? Uh, and uh, I also like the little uh, thing about how they, they swap, that uh, that they spend some time in Delin's quarters, and they spend some time in Sheridan's quarters, because their quarters on B5 aren't exactly roomy enough uh, to hold all their things uh, together because you know they're not designed as a couple's quarters, and it's actually a uh, an arrangement I have seen in real life couples. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if JMS is pulling some, from some personal experience there, and it's just cute. Uh, and uh, later when we get to see the, the way they they sleep, like when they're in they're in Sheridan's room, you know, uh, their their order is reversed compared to uh, the the sides of the bed that they sleep on in Delin's room because Sheridan is uncomfortable sleeping in, in the vertical because to sleep horizontally is, you know, tempting death in Mimbari's standards. And it's just a cute little thing. Um, so Byron's introduced in this episode, and Byron is, to go along with the entirety of Season 5, it's a contentious character to, to really talk about. Um... He is aptly named. Uh, I think the naming is a bit on the nose. He is supposed to be a tragic, Byronic, romantic hero. Uh, and Byronic heroes are characterized by, uh, you know, intense trauma, a romanticism about them, uh, but intense pain, uh, and... Uh, just a, a, a series of tragedies. Uh, Batman, for instance, is a Byronic hero. Uh, and uh, I think there is some talk, or, or, or some attempt anyway, to uh, to really talk about cults of personality in this. Um, that's, this will become clear as the season goes on. Notice that none of Byron's, uh, you know, uh, comrades ever say a word. Uh, some of them have that long hair look about him that he has. And there seems to be this almost uh, worshipping at his pedestal, you know, worshipping at his feet type thing. Uh, and it makes me wonder if the idea behind uh, Byron was to look at someone who has a good cause who is just and fair and wants to do the right thing, uh, but is pushed, you know, sort of pushed slowly but surely into a direction that seems a bit more radical, as well as sort of developing a cult around him, that it becomes less about the cause and more about uh, the person behind it. Uh, that his, his motivations, his wants... Uh, his talking points are sort of being diluted by his own organization. Uh, I think we'll talk more about that as the season continues and the Byron story, you know, develops. But I just get that sense that that's what Jameis was really after, was a character who means well, but his, uh, you know, his arguments are being co-opted and turned into some sort of weird fan worship in a way. Uh, and I'll 
like I said, we'll see as we go on if uh, if I'm really touching on what I think JMS is trying to communicate here. This is why Byron is a contentious figure, is because some people find his plot uninteresting, find the character flat and boring, or uh, don't really see what JMS was trying to say. And I understand who Byron is. I've met people like Byron. And I think... It's all about the corruption of a pure idea into something impure. I think that's what Jameis is trying to communicate here. And I also think that Rowan Akun Downs, who plays Byron, does a fantastic job. He's a very calm, collected individual, and we'll understand why when we get more into Byron's backstory. Uh, that he has an intense desire to see his people free. The the telepaths have constantly been persecuted by human society, hunted down by the Psycor. You know, they deserve to live free, and he is a firm political activist of it. But when you sit down and talk to him, while he may have some radical views, he does have a sense of charisma about him, and the way he speaks, uh, you know, uh, is almost sing-songy in a way that makes you inherently like him. Uh, and I think that's, once again, touchy into JMS's attempt to talk about cults and cult of personality. Now, interestingly, if this, if everything has been hunky-dory and perfect, uh, th this entire Byron storyline would have been, in fact, Talia, a newly radicalized Talia, uh, pissed off at the Psychor for what they did to her, uh, you know, trying to establish a colony, and... Uh, Ivanova stuck between her duties as the commander of the station to keep order and to follow the rules and the laws and the obligations to Earth and thus to Psychor, as well as the fact that Talia is her girlfriend. Uh, so, like, that that was the original plan. So it would have been interesting. In an alternate universe, I would love to have seen that. Uh, you know, that, that would be cool. Um... Now, Lockley. Lockley doesn't uh, get her full sense here. She'll get a lot more development as the season goes on. Uh, and what I really most like about Lockley is her um, her nonchalant attitude. Uh, she is very much a classic soldier. She believes in uh, you know everything being prim and proper and orderly. Uh, she's very stern when she needs to be, but she's also very personable when she can be. Uh, and the way she talks about things is very um, non-judgmental. Uh, she, you know, when Garibaldi confronts her, like, what side were you on? She's like, I was on the side of Earth, weren't we all? Um, the, because... She believes in duty and honor and all the classic stuff of the military. Uh, and in her opinion, it shouldn't matter. And, in you know, in Sheridan's mind, it shouldn't matter either. And we see that when she questions why he never asked. And there's a reason. I won't get into it. I won't even do a spoiler section on it of why he particularly chose her uh, and why, um, you know, he feels like he can trust her. But uh, he never answers why he never asked which side she was on. Because at the end of the day, what matters is that she is now a symbol. And he is now a symbol. What this is, is Babylon 5 was created 
to, uh, you know, you'll keep the peace, to uh, be the last best hope for peace. Uh, in a earth that has been through a civil war, that it, whose political uh, ramifications are still being felt and will be felt for years and years and years to come, uh, whose lines are, you know, political lines are still radicalized, there needs to be a coming in the middle, a marriage. And so, in a way, this is a political marriage. Sheridan, the leader of the rebellion, is stepping aside. His base of operations, Babylon 5, is now going to be put back in Earth's hands. And their Earth commander, regardless of whatever side she was on, someone who is from Earth, who believes in loyalty to Earth, is now in charge of Babylon 5 again. This is Sheridan relinquishing some of his symbolic power to give back to Earth and trying to heal those wounds that have been instilled as a result of the Civil War. Um, also, this episode has uh, some like brilliant moments of, uh, you know, you want to be president? All right, say I do. Okay, good, let's go eat. That, that, that's a great moment. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, the little bits about the ISA's uh, inauguration book having a, a single page from every holy text of every member race. There's something so optimistic about that that I really like. And I also uh, like how Sheridan is sort of your boots-on-the-ground type person. He doesn't like being a politician, and now he's forced into a political situation. Uh, and... He doesn't act like a politician. And as a result, his life is put directly in danger. While I can agree with what he says, that every leader should be willing to, you know, get their hands dirty and feel like they're citizens and, you know, maybe we'd have a bit more compassion in the universe if that was the case. Reality says that that may not be possible. It would be great. And it's a naive and optimistic view and one that I completely share. But in the real world, this is probably not possible, and we see how his decisions lead to his life being directly threatened multiple times in this episode uh, as a result of him wanting to be sort of a non-politician, a politician who cares, who gets his hands dirty, who is with his citizens, and not above, but equal. But beyond that, I don't really have much to say about this episode. There's a lot of hints of things to come this season. You know, it's mainly a setup. Uh, obviously, being the first episode of the season, uh, you know, moving some character arcs along, moving, you know, putting some pawns in place for ongoing stories this season, introducing Lockley. Uh, her contention with Garibaldi, which is a major focus this episode, is going to become a very, very important part of her character arc as well as Garibaldi's character arc, and I think is what really makes her a fantastic character is the way that she interacts with Garibaldi, but I'll get into more in that as we move on. But overall, it's a decent episode. It's more of a, the best way to put it, a sort of, some people would call it a filler episode. I wouldn't call it that. It's a episode that really let ourselves breathe and come to terms with the new status quo and let the characters come to terms with status quo so that we can move on to the bigger and better things. So until then, I'll see you next time. Bye.